in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and the frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, and his eyes sparkled. Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! Ah, said Scrooge. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas! Oh, don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle, nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I'll see you in hell first. But why? Why? Good afternoon. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. Well, I'm sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. But I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So, Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room, but stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, my clerk, with fifteen shillings a week and a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas, I'll retire to bedlam. The clerk, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands, and they bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, said Scrooge. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries, and hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Oh, plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses, are they still in operation? Oh, they are still. I, I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour, then. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their usual course. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, a few of us, Mr. Scrooge, are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when 
Want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall we put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. But uh, many can't go there, Mr. Scrooge, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labours with an improved opinion of himself. And the fog and the darkness thickened. Thickened so that people ran about with flaring links, proffering their services to go before horses in carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of a church, whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a gothic window in the wall, became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds with tremulous vibrations afterwards, as if its teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street at the corner of the court, some labourers were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. Foggier yet, and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold. The owner of a scant young nose gnawed by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. God bless you, merry gentlemen, may not think you dismay. Remember, Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose? Oh, uh, if quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's only once a year, a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and, buttoning his greatcoat to the chin, Scrooge walked out. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of a lane of boys twenty times in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at Blind Man's Bluff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, 
went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in the lowering pile of a building up a yard, where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses, and have forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years' dead partner that afternoon. And then... Let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but... <gasps> Marley's face! Marley's face. It was not in impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. As Scrooge looked...